0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Tuesday Talks with Titus. Today, I'm here with Rebecca McLaughlin, and today we're going to be discussing her book, The Secular Creed. Rebecca McLaughlin has a Ph.D. in Cambridge, Uni- Cambridge University and is the author of Confronting Christianity, named Christianity's Today's 2020 Beautiful Orthodox Book of the Year. Her subsequent works include Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, The Secular Creed, and Jesus Through the Eyes of a Woman. Now, for one thing, thank you so much for coming here and doing this interview with me today. Um, yeah. Do you have any additional information? Uh, no. I mean, I could talk forever about the
1: <laughs> the entirety of my life, but that's a, a, perfectly, a perfectly good summary. I'm from the UK, as people might be able to tell from my accent.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So I think it would be a good idea to just start things off with the first question um how did you come to know christ what's your testimony i was
1: raised in a family where we went to church um it was
0: due to audio concerns this portion of the video was summarized post recording edit in summary, Miss McLaughlin started by saying how she had her own faith instead of relying on her parents' faith, and grew in her faith and continues to grow in her faith today. What inspired you to write this book, The Secular Creed?
1: I don't know about where you live, Titus, but where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a lot of people have these yard signs. I've actually got an example here. Um which say something like in this house we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights and then there are usually a collection of other things on the signs like this one I've got on my hand says no human is illegal, science is real and kindness is everything and it it struck me that when people put signs like that in their yards and from talking to other folks in other parts of the US it seems like this is quite a common phenomenon, uh, it struck me that they're they're putting out a statement of belief
0: a little bit like um, Due to audio concerns, this portion of the video was summarized post-recording edit. In summary, Miss McLaughlin started by saying, there's a secular creed as well as there is a Christian creed. The secular creed seems to be these yard signs that we see around, and the Christian creed states, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten, the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made.
1: And so um, some people will will take those signs and kind of want to hammer them into their own yards because they've they've been told that these things are are all bundled up together. On the other hand, I think some Christians have looked at these signs and said, I know there are some things on this sign that, that Christians can't affirm, the Bible doesn't agree with. And so they just want to kind of knock the sign over completely they don't want to hear any of it because again they've kind of bought into the idea that these are all all tied up together And, and what i wanted to do in secular creed was to do something a bit more careful than that and to look at each of those claims on on the sign and to think from from looking at the bible what a christian what should christians actually think about each of these um and for instance, in particular, to notice that whereas in the Bible, um, on the one hand, we are very strongly pointed towards um, equality between people of all different racial backgrounds, love across racial difference, which is actually one of the things that you know, Jesus taught that was um, you know, radical at, at his time as well, love, love especially of those we've been raised to hate. Um, and that was something that was true in, in Jesus's time and culture, that the, the Jews and the Samaritans were kind of raised to hate each other in the same way, sadly, that um, white Americans historically were, were raised to hate black Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so on the one hand, the Bible points us very clearly to, towards love and fellowship across racial difference and gives us this vision in, in the last book of the Bible in Revelation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshipping Jesus together. On the other hand, the Bible actually points us very clearly away from same-sex sexual relationships and romance for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea that those two claims are like tied up together actually doesn't represent the, the, the bible's view at all um and i i wanted to as i said look at each of these claims really carefully because often for instance with that second claim that love is love christians say well i know the bible doesn't affirm same-sex marriage and so that then leads people towards um hateful or judgmental or kind of suspicious attitudes towards people who might identify as gay or lesbian outside the church and toward Christians who experience same-sex attraction now that's actually always been part of of my story I've always for as long as I can remember I've been a Christian like I mentioned earlier and for as long as I can remember I've been attracted to other women so this is not something that I kind of come to as like a external observer or um, you know someone who doesn't have um, an investment in in the topic it's been very clear to me that The more that I've studied the scriptures, the more clear it's been to me that actually the Bible doesn't affirm same-sex marriage. But at the same time, it's also become very clear to me that the Bible um, doesn't affirm Christians who would act hatefully toward gay or lesbian people. In fact, you know, Jesus calls us to love even our enemies, let alone people who, um, you know, non-Christians who might um, be making different sexual choices than, than Christians should. And also the Bible gives us a a vision for love between Christians, um, not only between Christians of the same sex, but actually I think especially between Christians of the same sex, that is is very real and intimate and serious. And and I think we've really lost sight of this. Um, So you might be familiar, and your listeners might be familiar with when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, said to his disciples, um, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he said, greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, often in, in our culture, both inside the church and outside, we think that the greatest love is married love, like romantic, sexual love. That's like the top kind of love. And then maybe parent-child love is the second. But actually, Jesus says that there isn't any greater love than sacrificial friendship love. And I think we need to kind of reclaim that, that vision for real, tangible, um, serious non-sexual love between believers that we can, can and, and should have in friendship um, because the, the message of the Bible is not that love is love, but that God is love and that he has actually given us different glimpses of his love and different kinds of human relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and next question. I loved your answer. It was great. Um, uh, the next question is, there are so many other authors in the world. Uh, what made you decide that you wanted to become one?
1: yeah great question. Um, I, before I, started, I wrote my first book Confronting Christianity, I'd spent nearly 10 years working with Christian professors at leading um, secular universities, you know places like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge. And part of my job was helping them to think about how to talk about their faith in relationship to their research and how to be a kind of public voice for, for Christianity in the university. And after those nine years, I, I felt like I'd, I'd heard, I'd met so many Christians at the top of the academic world in um, subjects ranging from physics to philosophy to psychology to history, and, and I'd heard you know, their faith stories and also how they think about their
0: research. Due to audio concerns, this portion of the video was summarized post-recording edit. In summary, Miss McLaughlin started by saying she got a lot of inspiration for her book from talking to some Christian professors at colleges. And they were saying how they didn't really know how to share the gospel when they weren't really allowed to. And after years of research, she published her book, Confronting Christianity. And as we said before, um, her book, the secular creed was inspired by yard signs so um our next questions are going to be coming from the first chapter um black lives matter the claim black lives matter so uh before i do that let me just show you all this book really quick this is an awesome book if you can get it on amazon you can get it on audiobook and i don't know all you can get it but please (laughs) get it it's a really good read uh, don't just hear us talk about it um, go on and um, get a get a good look at the book because it is really good I really enjoyed it our next question is from the chapter of Black Lives Matter um, and my question is do you believe systemic racism exists
1: uh, it, yes I do um, now I know that's become a very kind of polit- obvious I come from the UK um and one of the things that i've noticed and that people often kind of joke about is that if you're if you're english in america people automatically kind of think better of you now it's kind of dark like it's really kind of dumb because there's no like there's no intrinsic reason why english people are better than americans right mm-hmm. um, but people think that you're smart and people think that you're you know all sorts of good things and um, the reason for that is because uh, there have been centuries of, of kind of culture coming from from the uk um, the people in the rest, uh, rest of the world have um, been influenced by. And so Americans will they read Shakespeare and Jane Austen and watch like Downton Abbey and kind of all these uh, British TV shows and hear, hear English accents. And they'll think, gosh, you know, those those British people sound so sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so Americans have been raised to think that British people sound sophisticated. Yeah. So I, I have something which I could call kind of British privilege in America. People automatically think that I'm smarter than I am because of my accent. Mm-hmm. Now that's sort of one, one example of how history, which has nothing to do with me personally, influences how you and other American listeners are going to kind of immediately receive me. Mm-hmm. Now, if we think about how the, the history of um, how, how Black people in America um have have been treated over the years so we're you know we're starting with um black people being enslaved in america and and you know being expected to amongst other things work for no money and so not being able to to build up money to like pass on to their children and all the sorts of things that, that people often do um, and then we think about the fact that there was you know the, the period of, of segregation where black people couldn't go to the same schools as white people um, they couldn't ride on the same buses, even, um, they couldn't get the same kinds of jobs. Um, we see a, a history as well of discrimination in, in like black people being able to buy houses, you know, in order to buy a house, you almost always need to get a mortgage or like a loan from a bank. Um, and if, if things are set up to where if you're black, you can't get a loan from a bank, even if you have the same exact background, you know, financially as the, as a white person trying to get the same loan, then the black person isn't going to be able to buy the house and pass on that on to their children um so, so um when people hear about s- systematic or systemic racism today they think well you know that 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 can't be true because um you know many of the white people i know don't um have like ex- explicitly kind of racist attitudes toward black people and you know these days black and white people can go to the same schools and that sort of thing but what that doesn't take into account actually is the the history um and the ways in which family like generation on generation kind of passes things down so i think we, we are in a situation today um you know sadly where we're still living with the legacy of how bl- black people have been treated historically and the sort of flip side of that is that um you know white people have a kind of head start um and then it's even small examples so um I'll give one little anecdote on this. We um, have a, a neighbour who's actually from the UK, um, but his parents um, are Nigerian, so he's he's black and he lives here. And he is a, a, a PhD student at, at MIT here, you know, highly educated. Um, and he uh, asked us recently, uh, if he asked my husband if he could help him because his bike had got locked up um, at the local uh, store, like in the in the parking lot of our local store. And he couldn't get the bike lock kind of off because you know, he'd lost the key or so. There was some sort of problem with it. Yeah. And my husband has like various tools. And at first, my husband was sort of busy and he was like, oh, I could just give this friend the tools to go and like cut the bike lock off in the parking lot um, of, of our local grocery store rather than my husband going to do it himself. And then we thought, oh no, wait a minute. <laughs> if we do that, then what's it gonna look like? It'll be a, a black man breaking like cutting off the bicycle lock for a bike and and that's gonna it make him vulnerable to people thinking that he's stealing that bike mm-hmm. um again because of the the history of how things sort of have, have been and the sort of history of, of injustice um it's meant a number of things including the fact that actually um black people are disproportionately poor they're much more likely to be poor than white people in america of course there are many poor white people in america but just you know, demographically, there's, you're more likely to be poor if you're black. Um, you are far, far, far more likely to be stealing a bike if you're poor than if you're rich, because why would you need to? If you if you can buy a bike, why would you risk, you know, the uh, risk getting in trouble with the police for, for stealing a bike? And so we had to we had to think, no, we can't set our, our friend up um, to potentially be vulnerable to people thinking that he was stealing his own bike, you know, and, and that's just one tiny example. But I have so many black friends who have, Experience things like that, where if if a white person had been doing the exact same thing as them, nobody, everybody would have assumed, oh, that's their bike, and they're just you know cutting off the lock. But yeah. because they're black,
0: people will have a different assumption. There's been like a long, as you mentioned, there's been a long history of um, Americans just treating African American people just wrong. Um, mm. And so my question is should we disregard historical figures who owned slaves or mistreated people of color by taking down monuments, place cards, or portraits?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, and I don't know that I have a kind of a yes or no answer, yeah. because I think sometimes what we can do with history is we can kind of um, Sometimes I think we're actually better to look back over history and kind of tell the full story of somebody mm-hmm. um, and, and of a situation, so that we can all kind of get the 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 honest view of what that situation was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, there's there's one response which would say we kind of want to like um, you know. Well, there are some people who say I don't care how somebody was treating African Americans um, at this point in history. Um, They did other great things, and so we want to celebrate them. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who would say, actually, I I don't care what other good things they were doing. If they were mistreating um, black Americans or if they were holding slaves, um, then we should sort of uh, erase them from the historical record, as it were. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're probably and and I think there are situations where honestly, we have been celebrating someone who just shouldn't have been celebrated but I think the answer to that isn't necessarily to kind of just not talk about that person anymore. The answer is probably to say, okay, this is the role that this person played in history. Um, Here are some things that we can see that they did that may have been good things. Here are some things we can see they did that that may have been like extremely, extremely bad things. And we kind of, we need to recognize um, the, the holistic picture there because I think the risk if we don't, if we just kind of completely cut people out Mm-hmm. is that we can almost end up with a like a rose-tinted view of history um to say and, and to not really learn the lessons of history and learn how people um you know can can act in ways um, that are in, aligned with their culture and like really evil um there are there are many ways in which we today could be uh, can be acting in ways that are aligned with our culture and are really evil and we need to we need to see that um, and we can if we if we look and we can if we, if we look at history carefully, I think we get a kind of better vision for that today.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, the next questions are gonna be coming from the chapter um, entitled Love is Love. If someone who is same-sex attracted and is currently practicing in the same-sex activities, is it right for them to be in a leadership role in the church, such as leading worship, Teaching Sunday school, something like that.
1: No, um, I, I think the New Testament is very clear that anybody in unrepentant sexual sin, which would include um, it, it, that's anyone who is sleeping with somebody who they are not married to, um, and marriage is is male female um, it's very clear in in the New Testament that um, same sex sexual relationships are out of bounds, as are you know, as is uh, adultery of, of other kinds, as is sex before marriage you know if there was a, um, a man and a woman who were not yet married even if they were planning to get married um, who were sleeping together that, that those all of those things would actually disqualify somebody from leadership in the church mm-hmm. um, so so I think the answer is no they shouldn't be in that role um, I think sometimes uh, as, as Christians we've, um, we've maybe been clear about that when it comes to same-sex sexual sin and we've been less clear about that when it comes to opposite sex sexual sin. And I think the New Testament actually calls us to be very clear about both.
0: Uh, And the next question is going to come from uh, the chapter titled gay rights or civil rights. Um, and so my question is, do you think same sex marriage should be legal from a social perspective?
1: yeah it's really it's it's a really interesting question actually because there are quite a lot of things that I think are absolutely essential for Christians that I don't think should be the law of the land for for non christians mm-hmm. so um you know examples of this would be i think it's it's vital that christians uh regular members of a local church I think it's vital that christians um pray frequently that they give um generously to the poor and that they um Taken the taken God's words um, in the scriptures, and, and that they don't participate in sexual sin. Um, now, I wouldn't want like if you gave me the option of making it suddenly the law tomorrow in America that everybody had to go to church next Sunday. I wouldn't make that a law because I actually don't think that's the right. You know, I, I would love, I would absolutely love for every single person in America to go to church next Sunday. But I don't think making it the law is the the right way to achieve that. Now, um, on the other hand, people sometimes say, "Well, you can't you can't legislate morality. You can't build laws on um, on on ethics, and certainly not on kind of Christian ethics. If that would be unfair, like holistically." And I wouldn't agree with that either, because actually, all our laws are based on morality. You know, the the laws about not murdering are based on morality and there have been plenty of cultures where it was like okay to murder some people and not to murder, murder others and you know if we have a law that says nobody is allowed like it's, it's not okay to murder anybody um we actually you know can ground that in in christian ethics yeah. so so i guess those are the, the two ends of the spectrum like on the one hand i think all our laws are legislative morality on the other hand i don't think um th- christian ethics should be imposed on everybody um in every in every instance now i think it, it's I think people could take different views as to whether at this point, especially as same-sex marriage has already been legalized in America, whether it would be constructive to kind of reverse that um, or whether it, whether it wouldn't, or whether it's more constructive to um, continue to to preach the gospel and to call people to repentance and faith, um, you know, regardless of, of what the laws are on these questions. I think it's really important that we recognize our job as Christians is not to impose Christian sexual ethics on non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Our job is to tell them about Jesus and to invite them to repent and believe in him. And, and if they do, all sorts of things will follow from that, including it will have a dramatic impact on, on how they, they think and act sexually. Um, so, so I don't know that I have a kind of, again, like a yes or no answer to that. I, my, my guess is that it probably wouldn't be the most constructive thing to reverse same-sex marriage um, for, for non-Christians now, but I, I'd be actually open to arguments on, on both sides of that. I, I, I think the advance of the gospel is more important. And I think we need to be really clear. And again, this is where I think Christians have often um, misunderstood unhelpfully. Um, you might have a friend or I might have a friend who is not a Christian and who is like faithfully married to their spouse of 30 years. Um, they are just as much a sinner before God and uh, in desperate need of Jesus as a, a, a gay friend or a lesbian friend. It's it's not that there's a sort of special category of sinfulness um, that people in gay and lesbian relationships are are in. That they are they are sinners just like every other non-believer. And so our primary concern for them is not to. Help, make sure they exit their same-sex marriage. Our primary concern for them is, is to call them to repent and believe in Jesus.
0: Yeah. And actually, kind of on that note, um, you did mention in your book that a woman you know was married to another woman. And she eventually realized that biblical relationships should be one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. But they were raising a child together. They figured out how to raise their child not as wives but as sisters in Christ. What is the best way to some oh, for someone to just stop what they're doing right now? Once like once they realize that what they're doing is wrong, what's the best way for them to do what they did? Did they just cold turkey it sort of? I don't know um, what the best term would be for that, book, but. Uh, What would be the best way to imitate that and do it as quickly as possible?
1: Yeah, I think um, this is the the kind of issue where actually the individual situation matters a lot. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And the the woman I interviewed for that section of my book, she said, I I want to be really clear that that both she and her um, former partner. She was like, both of us were 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 willing to completely give up our relationship, like, you know, to to not have any kind of relationship at all going forward if that was what Jesus was calling us to Mm. and and I think there will be some um who who become believers while married to somebody of their same sex or or in or in relationship with somebody of their same sex like that who they think the 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 wise thing for them to do will be to to, for a a kind of complete um end of, of the relationship in in any form because it's because it may be something that they they, they don't feel like um, they can change or, or I guess as, as as this lady put it it wasn't that she said like she changed the relationship but she, she said that the Lord had changed both her heart and her former partner's heart
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule um, mm-hmm. as with any situation of sin um, all of us will have different struggles and different vulnerabilities and we need to be really realistic about our own sinfulness um and not um the 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 older i get as a christian the the less i want to rely on my own virtue to be honest like the more aware i am of of my own capacity for sin um so i don't think their story is like the um the only kind of uh, paradigm or or picture of how, how this should work out um but i think for, for anybody, I mean, Jesus says um, that anyone who wants to come after him is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then he says, anyone who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, so if, if somebody in whatever situation repents and believes in Jesus, it, it demands everything of them. It, it means actually putting everything on the table. Um, and that's true, again, whether they're married or single, whether they're same-sex attracted or um, heterosexual or whatever. We all put everything down um, in order to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But as we lean into Jesus, we will actually find that we are not ultimately losing our life. We're saving it. Now, of course, that's true, true in the end um, when Jesus comes back to earth as judge and, um, and gives us resurrection bodies. But it's also true in meaningful ways today that if that, that what we give up for Jesus, we will um, whatever whatever love relationships we give up for Jesus, he says we will receive back more even now um, in terms of family and the church. And um, I think that's I think that's a lot of what these these women experience. They they found new family in the church.
0: Amen. All right, so as we get closer to the end, uh, I'm just going to cut out a couple questions. Um, So let's go to the chapter, Women's Rights are Human Rights. Um, So I'm just going to go back to the last question on here, because I really think this question may be pretty important. Um, What would you say to someone who's listening to this podcast who is struggling and thinking of getting an abortion?
1: Gosh, that's a really important question. And yeah, it's gonna to have to be our, our last, unfortunately. Um, it, it, it really grieves me, the ways in which we have um, normalized, uh, how to put this, the more that we have sort of created a culture of sex outside of marriage, um, the, the worse it's actually been for women. And this is this is not something that I'm just saying as a Christian, I've read multiple books by um, non-Christians or by people who aren't speaking specifically from a Christian perspective, who are pointing to the psychological toll that it takes on women um, to engage in multiple sexual relationships, which has become a kind of cultural expectation. Um, We we have really um, we've set up a system that is really bad for women. And then we've told women that if they become pregnant um, accidentally, that there's a sort of quick fix to that situation. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think what I would say to, to a, a woman who is uh, considering an abortion, and, and for most women who are, it's because they feel like they, they wouldn't get the support that they need in order to raise a child or even to go through with a pregnancy and have, a, have their baby adopted. Um, and to be clear, there are many, many, many parents desperate to adopt babies. Um, there's, there's no kind of shortage on, on, on that front. Um, what I would say to that woman is, there is a, a family of, of, of believers within walking distance of where you live, whose um, job it is to be your family and to help you raise this child and and to to love you and support you um, both financially and emotionally find that family and join that family and if you're already part of a church family and you feel like you'll you'll be judged um, by by the Christians around you um, if they are judging you they they're not reading their bibles they're not recognizing um, that we're all sexual sinners mm. uh, and that Jesus had nothing but welcome for sexual sinners who came to him and extremely hard, hard words for self-righteous religious people. Mm. So um, give, give your Christian family, and when I say family, I mean the church, not just your immediate family, give them a chance to love you as Jesus would have them love you.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate all these answers. Um, and I really uh, hope that you guys who are listening got something out of this. Again, please um, read her book, The Secular Creed. Uh, also read um, Confronting Christianity and her other other books. I'm planning on reading a couple of them as well. So um, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Titus. Take care.
0: You too. Thank you. Bye.